We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Joe Black, More Than a Dodger, published by Chicago Review Press, the author Martha Joe Black. Please join me as we welcome to the clubhouse Martha Joe Black. Thank you. And thank you so much for uh, coming in from Chicago today. Yes, for flying I flew in, today. in today. So uh, I really appreciate that. No, and, thank you uh, so much for inviting me. Ah, uh, well, I, the the book is fantastic, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I think maybe uh, we're going to get to a Q and A, so our crowd can ask whatever they want. A lot of our discussion is may center on things that uh, from a different angle. Okay. Um, because. Just to kind of, uh, I think most people know about your dad who are here, probably listening to the podcast as well, but your dad was the first, uh, was uh, at the age of 28, he became a Brooklyn Dodger after the, uh, coming up through the Negro Leagues, the Cuban League, Winter League, Jackie Robinson's roommate. Uh, He then wins National League Rookie of the Year. He's the first African-American pitcher to win a World Series game. Mm you weren't around for any of that, obviously. No, I was not. <laughs> so I think we're going to talk about times that you when you were around. And, okay. Uh, if I have this correct, your dad was about 45 or so when you were born? Yes, it's kind of ironic. The book is born when I'm 45, and I was born when my dad was 45. Oh, wow. Oh, now, see, I bring a lot of connections together. I like that. My dad, yeah. <laughs> well, a couple of people have already told me that as soon as uh, they, they knew you were his daughter, just that, that they thought you looked exactly like him. Did, did yes, my mother was very upset. <laughs> <laughs> She's in heaven now. And she goes, yes, I was. I was very, very upset. So. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I think a, a spot I'd like to start, if you don't mind, is uh, 1975, your uh, your dad, you're in Arizona. Mm-hmm. It's Arizona in 1975. It's not exactly the most liberal state in the United, in the country. Yeah, no, they didn't even know who um, Dr. Martin Luther King was. I don't think at the time. So do, do they now? Yeah, they have legally. They had to know <laughs> who he was. Yeah, they were the last state. Nothing against anyone yes, in Arizona. Yeah, they but had yeah. The, they were the last state to approve him. Yeah, okay, sorry. Uh, your dad, uh, your parents were getting divorced, mm-hmm. and your dad won custody of you, uh, sole custody. Yes. Which is really uh, quite unusual at that time for a lot of different reasons. If you could just kind of kind of take us back to that time a little. Yes. No, I remember this literally like it was yesterday. Um, my parents started the divorce actually when I was three years old. And, you know, Arizona at the time was a state that um, – I can't think of the right words because I've never been married, so I don't know about this divorce stuff all the time. But um, (laughs) that my mother was like, oh, I should file for a divorce in Arizona versus Chicago. Um, I guess there was a way in Arizona that if you were married for a little bit, the spouses always received something in the divorce settlements. And um, so it started when I was three, finalized when I was five. And I do remember that I had to speak to the judge. Because um, he asked to speak to me because my parents were in court. So I wasn't in court during their arguing back and forth. And the judge honestly just asked me, who would you like to live with? And I said, my father. And he looked at me. He goes, 
Why? Because now I'm a little girl. My mom is beautiful. She was dying. Caroline Dynasty, as I told somebody else here earlier. And I was like, well, my dad comes home from work, and I loved Barbie. And I was like, Daddy, play with me. And he goes, okay, kid. He would take his suit jacket off, because they still wore suits in Arizona, even though it was 150, <laughs> and um, put his briefcase down and get on the floor with me to play Barbie. When I was born, my dad was 300 pounds. So he still got on the floor with me and played with me. Uh, my father taught me out of all the Barbies because he was an exec, so I had lots of Barbies, including the Cher doll that I cut her hair, though. But um, that if I was like, well, I want the blonde, my dad's like, well, you have to wait till I'm done playing with her. Because he taught me I had to learn how to share. Um, I didn't have any siblings that were close in age. My brother's 17 years older than me, so he wasn't playing with me because he was like, oh, my God. He held me as a baby, and he was like, what is this? Um, and then they took me away because he was scared. But um, my father did so much for me, and that's what I relayed to the judge. Um, my mother, I would tell the judge, was beautiful, and she cooked really well. But it had nothing, no connection with me, so to speak, as raising me in that sense. So I think, yeah, I, do I want to brag and say I'm the reason that my dad got custody of me? Of course I do. But um, <laughs> that's probably not true. Um, I do believe in the arguments that my father said it's not about proving my mother wasn't a fit mother, but my father wanted to show me love, loyalty, and guidance, and he felt he could do that more in person than with just a check. Money wasn't going to show me that. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, for, thanks for sharing that. And uh, before we go back in, in years a little bit, just to kind of stay in that realm, uh, in addition to being the first African-American pitcher to win a World Series game, your dad was the first African-American vice president of a transportation company in the United States, uh, Greyhound. Correct. And I think they called him Mr. Greyhound. Yes, they did in the black community. And it's funny, and I'm very honest about all my downfalls. See, my father raising me never... Really talked to me about baseball. Thank God for Chuck Schaffner, my co-writer. He's like, I love this stuff. I was like, you go for it. <laughs> um, I can get you to talk to some people. I can get Sandy Kofex on the phone and stuff like that because they at least know, oh, yeah, that, that's a little girl. Joe will do anything for her. Um, so that was something that was easy for me to do. Um, I worked for Jerry Reinsdorf, who was from New York, grew up in Flatbush. He's a huge boy. He's the chairman of the Chicago White Sox because he loved the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, so um, that's how that connection got with Chuck and I with the whole baseball thing. But my dad um, did everything for me. I mean, I got the sex education talk from my father. My mother was too embarrassed to do it. So we took a Greyhound bus from Arizona up the coast of California because he didn't feel it was comfortable just to sit in the living room like most of us got. Most kids are like, my dad just sat me in the kitchen or my mom sat me in the kitchen if it was a little girl to talk to me about it. My dad's like, let's do it in another way so you'll be relaxed and you won't be stressed because, of course, at 13, we think we know everything. So I was like, oh, okay. And then in college, I thought I knew everything too and I was like, whoa, I was way off. <laughs> With a lot of things. So it was on the Greyhound bus. That, uh, yes, that yeah. was the Greyhound bus. But yeah. <laughs> That was the only time I was on a Greyhound bus, um, and it was funny. People are like, so you trade the bus all the time? I was like, no, no, I don't. And um, as I was telling the other young man earlier, that my uh, Sinbad, the comedian, was on trying to get to the show, a TV show that we used to watch a lot back in the day, like Star Search. I think it was Star Search. He needed to get there, and he went to a Greyhound bus station. He goes, Joe Black, leave me a ticket. And the agent was like, yeah, we don't have a ticket for you because my dad's name was pretty prominent in um, Ebony and Jet magazine and in black radio and TV. And he's like, no, he is. And they're like, oh, okay. So they call the corporate office. 
and got my dad on the phone because my thank goodness my dad was in Phoenix at the time. And um, he picked up the phone. He goes, okay, let me talk to the young man because I don't know who that is. And he didn't go by the name Sinbad. He had a real name, like, let's say John Smith. Um, and I can't think of the real name that's in there. But um, my dad talked to him, and he asked the agent behind. He's like, is it clean dress? And he's like, yeah, my dad's like, go ahead and give him a ticket. Um, and so that is, and as you can remember, uh, Sinbad, one-star search. I'm still waiting for a check because <laughs> um, he's been in a couple movies too, a long time ago. So I, I did no check. Bobby Benilla owes me money because my dad helped Good him. Good luck with that. You know, um, during that time in that World Series where he explained to Bobby, like, this is what Mantle did to me. He backed up. The pitcher won't pay attention to that. And Bobby hit a home run in Florida, won the World Series. So, yeah, I'm still waiting. <laughs> Anybody needs my email address, if you know any of them, please let me know. <laughs> I'll be happy to give it to you. <laughs> so, all right, sorry. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's Mr. Greyhound, so, yeah. All right, well, uh, speaking of Mr. Greyhound, we're gonna, we'll take him in a different area. And as some of our regulars know, we, we don't really let the authors just come and open the page book and start reading. I, we kind of find that boring. But I'm going to read just about two, three sentences, and then okay. I just want you to... Talk about it a little okay. because I thought it was so beautiful. No, I'd love to. So this is what uh, Martha Joe wrote. Uh, My father's experience at Morgan State was a major factor in deciding where I would go to college. When we started to talk about which colleges might interest me, he said, here, and then put a piece of paper on the table. Here are all the black colleges, he said. Pick one. Oh, yes. That was the, the dining room table where he would do his speeches and I would do my homework. Every night. Um, we ate dinner together every night as well. Um, so he was like, all right, so pick one. And I was like, uh-huh, well, you went to Morgan, so I'm definitely not going there. Um, because I did not want to be like, oh, you're Joe Black's daughter, so you must. And I was like, yeah, I don't. You didn't know my mother, so no. Um, and um, from there, he told me that his friend, Bill Cosby's son, Ennis, was going to Morehouse. And I was like, oh, well, I can go there. My dad's like, well, you can't. That's an all-male school. And I was like, all right. He goes, but Spellman's across the street. There's Clark, which is um, boy and girl and boy. Um, Morris Brown's further down. Um, but I would stay in the quad area, which the three, so it's Morehouse, Spelman, and Clark. They're right together. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll just go to the all-girls school. So I went to Spelman for two years. Um, I would tell anybody for the time, because I've already said my age, by the time I went, it was an amazing experience. Um, the teachers were always paid attention to the young ladies. I will never forget, I cannot remember her name because I'm really bad with names that I told a young lady that's sitting next to me that she saw me, boyfriend trouble, we all had that in college, and I was crying because, you know, we're overdramatic because that was my husband in my mind because, you know, I didn't know any better. And um, she asked me to stay after class in World Lit, and I was like, oh my gosh, I turned in my homework, my father's going to kill me. And she was like, are you okay? And I said, yes. And she goes, okay, well, I just noticed your eyes were really red today, and you're, they're normally not. And I was like, oh, boyfriend trouble? She goes, okay, as long as you're okay, your family's okay, that's all I wanted to talk to you about. And that was it. So I would at least say the classes had maybe 20 to 25 people in the class, so the teachers paid attention to you. You just were not a number um, that was there, um, which was nice. And, and I would say it was fun. I learned a lot. Um, I got to meet my dad's fraternity, <clears throat> quote-unquote, men, Omega Sci-Fi, let's see, Michael Jordan, um, Shaquille O'Neal, a lot of Omegas, Bill Cosby's an Omega, um, and the fraternity brothers, you know, they had the, most people were like, oh my God, you should be scared of them. They'll like do fresh things to girls, whatever. And I was like, 
oh, and I didn't know, and I was standing there, and one started to walk over to me. I will never forget this. And um, they were like, so, who are you? And I was like, I'm Joe Black's daughter. And they were like, you know what? Anything you need, you ask us. No one will bother you because <laughs> you were well protected. And my father came to school like the week later because he had a business trip, and my mother dropped me off. And he was like, everything okay? And I was like, no, yeah, it's fine, Daddy. Um, you know, I met some Omegas. They said they would look out for me. He goes, that's good. That's good. I was like, oh, all right. And, of course, I got a boyfriend within two weeks. I was really talented then. I was really cute when I was younger. Oh, boy. I was like, wow. Um, and I'm still friends with that man to this day. Um, and my father loved him so much that when Morehouse lost his financial aid, my dad paid for his second year at Morehouse. Oh, wow. Did not get a scholarship because my dad did start scholarships at Greyhound for um, African Americans to go to school. He encouraged everybody that a lot of people that especially worked in the mailroom at Greyhound, the few blacks that were in Arizona, <laughs> go back get your GED. I'll figure out a way to get you an education. And um, my dad did that. And um, I'm still waiting for that ex-boyfriend to pay me too. So I have three. <laughs> and you know, I do everything in threes. We are talking about baseball. And. Um, <laughs> And, you know, but again, he and I are still friends. I mean, I, I love, I sincerely love him, and I know my father loved him a great deal because my father would not have just said, I'll go into my own pocket because I'm sure my father had ways to get scholarship money. But, you know, it's all about education. And, um, I mean, you know, black colleges, I've heard they're different now. I don't have children, so, um, but I know when I went, they <coughs> definitely, um, I will, if I'm blessed to live to be 80 years old, I will have things to laugh about. That's great. Well, we're learning a lot about uh, about different sides of your dad. And uh, there's a, a rumor about something that happened once at a nightclub called uh, Tommy's. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's see. If my friends in high school were here, they'd have been like, oh, I was there. I was like, yeah. So I lied. I was 16. I'm sure maybe all of you did not in your age at that point. You're like, no, I'm just a perfect child. I was not. I lied a little bit. And um, I went to Tommy's with my best friend, Sharice Andrews. May her soul rest in peace. She passed away in 2003. But um, we went to this club called Tommy's. Now, in the back where we went were 18 and under. Like, you had to be 15 to 18. And then in the front was 21 and over. So we would only go to the back club because we were 16. We weren't trying to sneak in or get any alcohol or anything. And... Um, it was kind of like American Bandstand in my mind because we were like all dancing or Soul Train for Don Cornelius. I'm not sure. Um, and we were all on the dance floor like in this area, in this great room here. And my friend Charlene, who happens to be Mike Bibby, who plays with the NBA's cousin, um, said, your dad's here. Now, you're 16. You're dancing with a boy that was cute. And you're like, you're so full of it. And she's like, no, really. And yes, you all can make fun of me. And I didn't have a jacket on. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is what my father did. My dad is six, two and a half, over 300 pounds. This, in my other hand, is my dad's hand. This is one of my dad's fingers. My father went like this. Whoop! Picked me up, <laughs> dancing, smacked me on the butt. That's the only spanking I ever got in my life. And walked me outside. I was like, oh, my God, hysterically crying. Because what? You're embarrassed, and you learn you never lie. My best friend was outside talking to a boy. She's like a... He has her. He's getting my ass next. Excuse my language. She hid behind a car. <laughs> yes, and I got driven home and lectured. And I was like, and oh, my God. And oh, my God. And to this day, we are all in our 40s, and they remember that. And they tell everybody that has never met me. They're like, oh, and her dad got her out of a club. And I was like, do we really have to discuss Tommy? And they do. So, yes. 
Fun times. So, yeah, so Joe Black, you don't lie to him. That was the plain and simple. You tell the truth, and if you tell the truth, you may get blessed with some nice things. Well, I'm gonna, I'd like to bring up a few names of people that, in the, from the sports world, mm-hmm. that, you, uh, that you knew or, or know. Okay. Some knew, know. Uh, the first, uh, he recently passed away. Minnie. Is it Minnie Minoso. So you have the connection in many ways. Yeah. Uh, and if you could just speak a little bit about your dad going, uh, from the Cuban uh, leagues, as far, as far as what you've heard, what you heard from your dad right. and Minnie Minoso, and just in general. Yeah. No. Um, as you guys may know, I work for the Chicago White Sox. Minnie is Mr. White Sox. Um, it's kind of ironic. I grew up with Ernie Banks' kids as well um, in Arizona. But for Minnie, is an, was an amazing man. He was always happy. Um, he will be sincerely missed, um, and he was just a great ambassador of the game. And I can tell you for recently, including last season, I actually saw him the week before he passed away. He came to the White Sox front office and had lunch, and I leaned over and I was like, oh, come see me when you're done, and I gave him a kiss, and I'm very blessed that I got to do that because um, I did not expect. I mean, I knew he was <clears throat> a couple years older than my father would be. Accidentally, I know those things, um, but... I never expected him to, because he's healthy. He was healthy. Like he came to lunch, he walked, he drove his own car. I mean, he did all of that. So I did not expect it. It wasn't like you know my father was sick, um, and that's when I went home to try to help him. So there was none of that with Minnie. But I know in the Cuban Winter League when um, Minnie played for the Cubans, and my dad played for the team I cannot pronounce her name um, in Cuba, and. Um, my Minnie was like, and this my dad's nickname is my brother's nickname now is Chico, and Minnie was like Chico, Chico, Chico. How do you get me out? How do you get me out all the time? And my dad is like, you hold the bat too tight, loosen it up, and you'll be able to hit me. And and um, Minnie was like, okay, okay, and he hit him ever since. Um, and my dad um, told a lot of players what the secret was to hit him um, in a certain way. And, and, you know, and I think it was because my dad loved and respected Minnie so much. And, he's, and they were in the Cuban Winter League. So, you know, he wasn't thinking, oh, you're going to kick my butt <laughs> later on. I mean, heck, um, Moose Scourin was in a hitting slump until he got with my dad. You know, later on when my dad, I think, was with the Washington Senators. And he got out of that hitting slump. That was Moose's favorite joke ever. <laughs> you know, at the White Sox. And Jerry Reinsdorf was like, I love that story. I was like, don't make fun of my dad. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You know, but I mean that was during my near the end of my dad's um, playing careers because of his elbow issues and stuff like that. So, but yeah, no, Minnie is um, going to be sorely missed um, at the White Sox because he's definitely he was definitely family and he was nice to everybody. People we sit together in what we call the um, Magellan Scout Lounge in the um, U.S. Cellular Field, and we I would sit next to him and we'd eat dinner before a game. And um, fans that have scout seat tickets would be there. Like, oh God, is that your dad? He's like, no, I'm not her dad. I'm her daddy's friend. And I was like, oh Lord, yes, no, I'm I'm from you know Phoenix. I'm not from Cuba. They're like, oh, I was like, yeah, because we all look alike. I know, um, you know. And they're like, well, he signed this. And I was like, Minnie, would you sign it? And Minnie was. This is how precise he was. If this, oops, sorry, that's all right. I, I got, got it. I got it. Okay. If you wanted Minnie to sign something, he would put something, the straight edge here, so he would sign it perfectly neat for you. So he made sure that, and he would sign anything you wanted him to sign, he would do for you. Um, If you wanted to take pictures, he would take a picture with you. Um, It did not matter. 
So, I mean, he will be sincerely missed because he was so good to everybody. Wow. Well, he was a, an extremely unique man, and somebody else who was a unique man who uh, you had uh, quite a close relationship with. Uh, the most famous godfather in the world is, is the godfather. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the second most famous godfather in the world is probably your godfather. Yeah. Yeah, so, Jesse Owens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, he didn't kill anybody. <laughs> he embarrassed Hitler. That's all he did. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so, if you want to just talk about your godfather a little bit. No, yeah. Um, again, this is going back to Arizona, that to my understanding, because I was young, I was two when we moved from Chicago to Arizona, because Greyhound Corp moved to Arizona, Phoenix in 1971. Um, Jesse and Ruth Owens moved not that far, like driving five minutes from my father's house um, and he and my dad played golf together all the time so I would go there and um, obviously they're older at this point like my dad they don't look like they did when they were younger um, and I he had some gold he had his gold medals out so I saw those and I was like oh my god this is so cool and I would see like video and I was like oh this is great um, when Jesse Owens died I was young um, and my father was very overprotective of me and so I wanted to go, and that his funeral was actually in Chicago of um, Jesse Owens. And my father was like, you're too young um, to go through that. And it was very sad. So when I became older, um, instead of me playing softball, because I never did, um, I don't even know if I know how to pitch at all, to be honest with you, um, but I ran track. And my dad was my coach. And I was good in seventh and eighth grade and then as girls we get boy happy and I was like oh, I don't want to sweat so I was stupid and I didn't <laughs> anymore but um, when I uh, did the 100 200 um, 4 by 100 shot put and discus so and long jump and because I wanted to be athletic you know so I was like oh, I'm going to do it all I'm halfway good and my dad when it came to the long jump because my dad wasn't running with me he was just explaining to me, keep your knees up, look forward, keep your arms straight and everything else. But with the long jump, he looked at me and he goes, kid, I know you love me and you respect me. And I was like, yeah, daddy, I do. You know, I mean, what, are we going to talk about money? What, what's going on? And he's like, so what I'm going to do is, if you guys know long jump, there's the board, there's some space, and then there's the dirt. My dad said, I am, and my dad was big, okay? I'm going to lay, you're going to hit the board, I'm going to lay in that space before you get to the dirt because you need to go long, higher and further, you have to jump higher. And um, I never stepped on my father. That's how he trained me because he's like, I know you are loyal to me and that you love me and you will not step on me. And if that was the best guilt you've ever heard in your life, that'll make you do anything right. And I was like, okay, daddy, I love you. But yeah, so no, I just ran track like my godfather because, you know, my godfather obviously was in heaven and I hope that, you know, when I was doing that, that he at least um, looked at me and he smiled from heaven. So, because I was doing that and honor him. And my dad ran track in college and stuff like that and played football and everything else. But, you know, it was my drive of him being so instrumental in my life. I mean, my father's friends... Um, people are like, oh, they're famous, they're this. And I was like, they get to yell at me and tell me to eat my vegetables. I don't get what you're talking about. You know, I mean, they were just like, you can't just eat this, you have to eat this too. And I was like, oh, okay, Uncle Jesse and Auntie Ruth, because that's what I would call them um, when I was young. So, and that's my um, Jesse Owens story. That's, that's a nice one. Thanks. Uh, and I have some other questions, but I, I want to see if anyone from our crowd has a question that they'd like to throw out at this time. 
So uh, to kind of keep on that track of, of, of your running track and whatnot, I know that for sometimes next ball players, it's tough to get into kind of the, the coaching aspect of it, especially if it's your own kid. You know, from everything I've heard about your dad, he sounds like a pretty, you know, impressive person and really, you know, I don't say put too much pressure on you, but how was it, you know, having him coach? I mean, that's a great story about him laying there, but when he would coach you every day, would there be a lot of, of technique or would there just be a lot of him giving you advice or how I many cool stories about just him coaching? I mean, him coaching was mostly about technique because he ran track in college at Morgan. Um, so, I mean, as we all naturally run like this. That's our that's our human nature nature. Excuse me to do it like this. My dad's like you have to make sure that you keep your arms straight up and down. Um, but he wasn't very. It wasn't. I don't know because I'm a oops <coughs> child, so to speak. Because um, he was 45 and 69 to have be a 45 year old father is like a 55 year old man having a baby now. I'm sure to compare the two. Um, so my dad never. Um, he was never hard on me on anything. Um, the hardest he would ever be on me would be schoolwork. Um, and he was like, you know, you do your best. My father uh, went to every PTA meeting. He introduced himself to every teacher, not because he played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. He's like, hi, my name is Joe Black. You have a problem with her? You call me. <laughs> you don't do anything with her. You know, because it was a different mindset. My father would be 91. So back then in school, you got in trouble. The teacher could hit you, you know, and, and stuff. And my dad's like, you won't do that to my child. Um, so my father was more instrumental in the educational side of things because he knew it was fun for me. He knew I was not trying to, and I was very blessed. Um, I didn't have to get a scholarship to go to college because he just paid for me to go to school. Not, we were not the dynasty family. My mother just looked like Diane Carroll on the show, (laughs) but, um, he was like, you know, you always, my father's biggest thing, you have to try your best. If you want to do something do your best that you can with it. And that's all I've ever done in my whole life. So. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Hi. Hi. I'll ask a question even though I'm pretty sure I know the answer. Do you have any regrets about baseball? Because he was basically overused in the 52 World Series. His career was shortened. Right. Um, no, he never had any regrets. I would say that my father was very, um, besides very honored that Jackie went through everything he did in 1947. My father was very grateful. Um, baseball, he got to live his dream. Um, you know, and I think any kid now, if you get to live your dream, you have to at least say, dang, I'm good. I would just said another word, you know, um, but it's recorded, you know, um, and I think my father is very proud. I believe that, um, which we did mention a little bit in the book and, and other people that I've spoken to that knew my father when he played and stuff like that, like on their phones, cause this took a seven year process to do this whole book. They were like, you know, I guess my father stood behind the pitching mound in 52 in the first game, and he stood there for a few minutes, and he looked around, and he was like, I can't believe I'm here. Um, because it was like, I'm here. These people are, like, really, really here. And granted, you know, then they got death threats. You know what I mean? Like, on my dad, Jackie, and everybody else, who, you know, Newcomb and Campy and stuff like that. But my dad was very honored to play a game that he was told he, would, he couldn't play because he was colored. Um, and he actually got to live that dream. And I think that for young people now, they don't have it as bad as they think they do. Because there is no segregation in this. And Major League Baseball helped start the end of segregation from that point. Since, you know, Brown versus Education was seven years after 1947, and the Civil Rights Movement was 1964. So it was because of Jackie, that's a good reason as far as I'm concerned. President Obama even won the first time. I was reading the book. Uh, I saw that your father went to Morgan State. Mm-hmm. 
and I thought, oh, that's where he played baseball, but I saw in the article in the book that Morgan State okay. didn't have a baseball team. No. Was that unusual? Was that part of I the think feeling that of the color line in baseball and the other black colleges that they have teams in baseball? To my understanding, I think it was partly because of there was no blacks colored at the time playing <coughs> Major League Baseball, so why even do a team like that? My dad um, had a Morgan football scholarship to go to school. Um, and so he played football there as well. And um, my dad played the Negro Leagues. It took my dad eight years to graduate from college. He did it because he was not going to disappoint his mother. She had a third, my grandma, who I'm named after, had a third grade education from the South. And she told all six of her kids, my dad's one of six, she goes, uh, what'd you learn in school? Like we all did. Nothing. She's like, you learned something. So you, she didn't understand it all. Um, she was a maid. Um, and they, when they would find my grandmother's clients would find some of the kids' names because there's six of them, like in the straight A list and everything that was in the paper, they would give it to her. And I think for the whole college thing, that my dad just played in the Negro League, so he left to go play, played in the Cuban Winter League. And so that's why it took him so long um, to graduate school. But it was just something that's how it was, I think, back then. I'm very blessed I didn't, I don't know if I'd still be living if I lived during that time, to be honest with you. Because that this is very hard for me to understand that there's a white drinking fountain and a black drinking fountain and somebody to tell me that you're not good enough. We as Americans all have our own personal insecurities anyway. And for someone to tell you something that you can't change, that has to be heartbreaking. It's kind of like women. And the same thing with business. So like, I can't change, excuse me for saying it this way, I can't change that God gave me a uterus. I can't change that. But... I can do as best as I can with what I have and at least give me a chance. If I fail, I fail. But then maybe I'll find something else that I'll be really better at. So does that kind of answer? Okay. I just have a thought of really about the college experience of African Americans. And I was wondering if that was really true across the country, that there were very few African American college teams in baseball. Yeah, I mean, now, thank goodness, there's no separation, but I don't even know, since I'm <clears throat> so much older, I don't even know if any black colleges have, I'm sure they do have baseball teams now, because there's money. There's no programbling, there's no program. They're, they're, okay. The drop, because if you're an elite black baseball player, you can play at UCLA. You play right, at so you don't State. have to go, and your parents are saying go to that because they're going to give you more scholarship money as well, because you know, black colleges don't have that much money either. I can tell you from my dad went to Morgan. And he was a Greyhound. He, um, Bill Cosby did a couple of shows there to raise money when the Cosby show was on TV. So people went there because they need to earn more money. Um, it's one of those things that, as you mentioned, a lot of athletes are going to schools that they get more notoriety. Bigger scouts are going to um, because they want those different teams to see them because they, that's how they get picked, unfortunately. There's a lot of lesser grade white players playing at HBCUs now. True, true story. Yeah. Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. But middle of the road. Right, okay. They, they, weren't, they weren't good enough to go to UCLA, so you're white and you could play for right. Roger Cater at Southern. Right, right yeah, yeah, I mean, and it, so yeah. It's, I mean, it's, like, it's you know, it's sad. Cubans, Puerto Ricans, and everything else, if you're too tan, they're going to put you in the um, Negro Leagues back then, too. Right. You know, I mean, only like for us, Ozzy Guillen, like, he's, you know, Hispanic, obviously, but, you know, he's the lighter version of that. So he. And I think from Venezuela, they had some issues too, darker, lighter type of a thing. So he judged some things on that too. Um, but, and he's a little older than me, but not that much. So, I mean, there's still a lot of issues that still need to be broken down because everybody's the same. So, 
So, um, I know now in Major League Baseball there's fewer blacks than there have been for a while to start. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is, and do you think that there's any way that there can be more incorporation to Major Leagues? I personally, this is just personal, and I don't have children or anything like that. I would say from when, like when I started with the White Sox, I was 23, so like Ken Griffey Jr. played. Um, Jeffrey Hammonds from New Jersey played for Baltimore. So there were some men, but there's no instant gratification in baseball. I don't care what color you are. You have to go through single A, double A, triple A, and you better hope somebody breaks their legs so you get called up. <laughs> or you get invited to spring training and you do something amazing that they're like, oh, my God, let me just have them come up in April, or at least they call you up in September. Um, if you think about it, whatever nationality somebody is, if you don't cut, and now the middle class is the new poor in this country, but if you were middle class, upper middle class, and you played baseball, you may get a scholarship quicker from playing basketball or football. You may go to the pros quicker. There's no guaranteed money in football. You have longevity more in the NBA. Baseball is longer longevity, but who has, no one has patience anymore to work that, to wait 10 years. I mean, my dad was 28 as a rookie. That was only because of segregation at the time. But now, I mean, Major League Baseball is going to Cuba. They have kids that they want them to go to college, at least to go for the first two years or something. So they're not taking – some teams, I think, do plop people out of high school. Um, But the education is the only thing they're going to have to fall back on. You know, um, Major League Baseball is a great organization. They do take care of their family. We do call them a family because um, MLB is the parent and all the teams are their kids. Um, so we follow all the rules that they tell us. Um, but I, I definitely think that um, there's just no instant gratification. I mean, the Jackie Robinson West team did well. Unfortunately, it was adults that made those decisions. The kids just played baseball. Um, so I don't think they should be punished for what adults have done. Um, they just play the game. And if I, I can't, I will never have that Korean team out of my head with the whole posing every time. And I was like, wow, you guys haven't even made millions of dollars yet. <laughs> and we're doing that, you know. So um, it, it's quite interesting on that sense. But I definitely think it's a financial thing. And um, maybe those um, scholarships are higher in the other sports because there's, and for the youngster, you're just like, I can get signed by an NBA team in college. I mean, look at Shaquille O'Neal. Look at most of them, you know, and they make millions, and I can help my parents, and I can help my family. And, you know, unfortunately, money is more important than the love of the game. Your father was traded by the Brooklyn Dodgers during the 55 season. Cincinnati. The World Series. Did he ever talk about how he felt about that? No, but I will tell you, though, O'Malley family, I have his ring from 1955. <laughs> So, because he was part of it, um, and they still gave him one. Um, but yes, he was, and I did something at Politics and Pros in D.C., and the person at that talk was like, can you sign this to who watched Joe Black as a red legs? So I was like, yes, it's Cincinnati red legs. Because, you know, that was, I think, Russia at the time. They couldn't just call him the Reds, which yeah. they are now. Um, but no, my father um, said a friend <laughs> took him, um, dropped him off. Because my dad took public transportation to the ballpark like most players. So you walked there because you lived that close. And um, he heard on the radio he got traded. Because there were no agents. Their gym was the outfield. They ran the gym back and forth. 
they sprinted. At the one point, they thought he was showing off. My dad's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not going fast. I'm like, yeah, you, you stop. You know, type of a thing. But, um, yeah, no, and then, you know, ended with Washington. So, the first Washington team. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, as you... As you were young, but your, your father was an executive at, at this point with the um, the fight for free agency and, and Kurt Flood. Did, did, your, did your father have interactions with Kurt Flood or a particular affinity for um, Kurt's struggle, you know, 25 years after you to say, I'm not, I'm not an indentured servant to the St. Louis Cardinals, um, white, black, or other, but right. I, am, I am a black player taking the first lead here to say, um, that I, I I don't want to be traded to the Phillies. I want to declare my free agency and go up against the family, so to speak. Right, right. Yes, and the, yeah, with, the and, mafia. Yeah, okay. With, uh-huh. with, with the only support of of, of uh, to come in and support him in, in the court with being Jackie Robinson. So, right. Yeah. No. Um, my father really didn't discuss a lot of that with me, and it's and I think it's funny now that I've done this because my brother was born in '52. Um, and I'm the oops, and I should have did a Greyhound book, I think. But um, that it's funny because my father talked to his friends. Do you know what I mean? So he would like he would talk to maybe Campy before he passed away, um, or he would talk to Newcomb or Lou Johnson. Didn't play with my dad, but he did play for the Dodgers. You know, so he would talk to people. My father was very close to Joe Gregiolo Senior. You know, so they would talk about certain things. Um, I believe it was Kamadi at first, Vincent, Faye Vincent. Um, how my dad started helping be a consultant um, for MLB and did things. So he would talk about all that stuff with those type of people, if that makes sense. Because, right. you know, in my 20s, I was like, mm, he's cute. Right. <laughs> you, know, that's what, you know, I'm a stereotypical girl. I was, you know, and, and my father knew that because he knew I was definitely his child. Um, and that's it. So, um, but no, he never really talked to me about that. I mean, my father was very, Frank Robinson and my dad were very close. I could tell you when my dad was sick. Frank Robinson and his wife and daughter were the only people my dad um, allowed to see him. Um, I did sneak Sharon Robinson in because she was doing something with MLB in Arizona, and I was like, okay, I'm going to bring you to the rehab center. Um, And I figured I did that because I know my father loved her father so much that if it was vice versa, I would want to give my respect to their friend. Um, and And she did that as well. So, um, so no, my father did not communicate stuff like that with me um, in that manner, but I'm sure he did talk sure. about it. You would have to ask Jerry Reinsdorf that. Because, sure. you know, he, Jerry and my father, Jerry knows more about my father than I do. And I am honest to God, Jerry knew that all of men should go to the doctor regularly. Jerry knew my dad's PSA was nine. <laughs> I didn't know. Jesus. He did not tell me or my brother, and I think he knew the year before he died. And Jerry was like, you should get your dad to go to the doctor. Because my dad was here on 9-11. And I was like, I try to tell him, you know, and he won't listen. He goes, oh, my back's bothering me. My back's bothering me. Um, and But Jerry knew. So, I mean, I think, you know, that's one of those friendships that my my father felt, that even though I didn't work at the White Sox at the time, I worked for the law firm, he knew Jerry would look out for me because that was his friend. And I'm telling you something that you know how much I love my daughter. And so, so do you think he didn't say that and he didn't tell you about it because he was just from a, a different generation where you don't talk about stuff like that? No, no, he wanted to protect me and my brother because I can tell you every year except for the year before he died, he <coughs> gave my brother and I the exact same lecture. So if something happens to me 
all the will and everything is over here. You know, you have the key to go to the bank. They know it's your name. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the only year he did not give my brother and I the lecture. Um, so I, I definitely think that um, subconsciously he kind of knew. And um, I can tell you my father actually died in front of me um, at the rehab center. And it was, in my mind, he they gave him a... a a relaxation pill because he was all antsy after the doctor left and um, they put him in a wheelchair and they wheeled him by me and my brother did not have a cell phone then in 2002 um, and he's older than me but um, he went to the pay phone to call our Aunt Phil that was in New Jersey to be like okay the doctor just left he said blah 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 and everything and in my mind I was looking at my dad and his eyes were getting drooping I was like okay the pill's working and all of a sudden in my mind I heard this song he said was playing at Northwestern Hospital when I was born the first time I ever saw your eyes by Roberta, Roberta Flack and he died two minutes later. So it's kind of like, I think it's that father-daughter connection. Um, my father was a mama's boy, 120%. He did everything to impress his mother, and I did everything in my life to impress him. I didn't, I didn't care about anything I was doing for me. Um, and I would say to anybody to this day, since I work for one of his friends that he trusted so much, I will do anything and everything I can to make Jerry Reinser happy at work. Because that's my love and loyalty I have to him versus just somebody that he gives a check to, like everybody, you know. And people are like, oh, yeah. And I was like, it's not because, I, you know, I don't sit at my desk and file my nails. As people, some people, as we all know at work, will look at you like you do. And I was like, I'm not his child. I don't look like him. I happen to look like his friend. But I wouldn't file my nails at my dad's job. I worked at Greyhound. They're like, you can pick any area you want. I picked the mail room to work at Greyhound because I thought they were all nice. And my dad's like, that's where you, I was like, yeah. He goes, okay. I, I never put myself like I should be anywhere else. I'm like, my dad told me it's all what's in here. What somebody has today can be gone tomorrow. And we all sit on the toilet the exact same way. <laughs> <laughs> Some people just said maybe have better toilet paper. That's it. That's it. But, you know, so. Well, I want to ask you a question that's, mm -hmm. uh, that touches on a lot of that and other things as well. It's in the book. I had never heard about it, heard this story before. And you kind of just threw it into the middle of a sentence a couple minutes ago. But uh, September 11th, mm -hmm. if you could just... Uh, Talk about why he yeah. was here. Um, my father was meeting Rachel Robinson, Pee Wee Reese's widow and son. Um, they were doing a sculpture, I think, here in New York. I don't know if there's it's one at, here. It's actually now, it, it does exist at the Brooklyn Cyclones ballpark. Okay, okay, because I wasn't sure. Like, and... They were supposed to look at drawings, and um, Mayor Giuliani was supposed to meet them. Obviously, he was busy that day. Um, and they were in, I don't know exactly what building downtown, but they were in the Closer office building. Closer than we are to, uh, in the, at, so for those of you who know, it's, uh, they were in the Jackie Robinson Foundation on Canal Street, just off of uh, Hudson. It's okay. pretty close to the World Trade Center. Okay, so yeah. I know, um, for my dad told me, and it was I, I, not funny, and I say this. I worked at a law firm. I heard on the radio that, because um, I didn't have Sirius at that point, so it was a regular radio, and every station um, broke in and said, oh, God, there's something happening in New York. And I was like, oh, my gosh, my dad's there. And then they talked about a plane. I called my friend, because she's from, she was married to Frank Thomas at one point. She's not anymore, um, but she's from New York. Her parents live here, and I called her. And I was like, oh, my gosh, are your parents okay because of 9-11? She goes, yeah, no, I'm trying to call, but the phone's busy. I was like, oh, okay. I went to work. 
at Winston. We were on the 42nd floor. Winston closed the offices at 10 because at that point they didn't know if it was just people attacking just tall buildings and big cities, LA and Chicago and every way south. Um, and I called my dad's hotel because my dad would write me a letter. He would tell me what hotel he was at, how long he was going to be there, the phone number to the hotel, and the whole nine yards. So I always knew where he was. But I felt very calm um, in my in me at that point. And I was like, oh, well, I'm sure I'll talk to him. And I tried a few times at work, nothing. And then they closed the, the offices. I went back to my um, condo, and I called him again. I didn't talk to my dad until late that night. And he told me that um, they thought that a bus hit the building because that's what it sounded like at first. You just heard, heard a big boom, and it shook. So they thought something hit it. Um, and they were like, oh. And they had windows, obviously. So they looked, and they were like, something's not right. Security then came to the office because they knew who was up there, took them down to the building. I guess there's like a basement area, and it left them there for a little bit. And then um, when the second one hit, they went down to tuck get them and said, okay, you guys have to go home. We don't know what else is going to happen. And um, my dad told me that two police officers helped him, because again, he's big now, six or three hundred pounds, helped him run back to the hotel. And in my dad's mind, that's why his back was hurting him. When it wasn't, that's when his cancer was coming out. Um, and I think the stress of that, because obviously he was in World War II, I guess it's like he was too high to actually fight. That was very strange. I don't know if I, that's inherited to me or not. But um, that he was devastated because he saw people jumping from those buildings. Um, and he couldn't sleep when he got home. It took a week before he can go back to Phoenix. And so my dad would be knocked out of sleep, he said, like at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and be up all night. after, Because in his mind, he didn't know what was going on at the time. And, and he was just devastated from seeing people jump um, and did not get that at all. And from there... Um, the cancer must have really started working because I personally think, you know, my father's family had had different cancers in their system and um, my dad always figured he would die of cancer, but he didn't know which one and it was the simple one that men should take care of the prostate um, to be checked on regularly. And I was like, Dad, just go get go to the doctor because my friend's father had prostate cancer and he got triggered because his lower back hurt him. And so to me, I was like, that to me was a sign for, to tell him, just go, go. Jerry would tell him and everything else. And my dad's like, no, once my back gets better, I'll go then. And he never did. And then, um, gosh, that was September 11th. And then my brother found um, our father on the floor in the house, and he couldn't get up. And um, when he was just going over to see him, and so my brother helped him back up, and he was going to call the doctor, and my dad very, no, you're not. Don't, because my dad did not like doctors at all. Um, and um, from there, you know, it, it just it went down from there. And then my brother found him again on the floor. And then at that point, he did have the ambulance come. And then that's when they said that he had prostate cancer. So that's when my father learned. Then I found out. And then I took a leave of absence from work because my brother had to work. He's not a brain surgeon either. I'm in Arizona. He said he was too busy because of his job. And I was like, you know, I just bought a condo. I live in Chicago. You can take everything I own. I went home. I took a leave of absence from the law firm. I bought baby monitors because I wanted to make sure I could hear him breathing. Because my me growing up, my dad snored. Like he'd break your glass. Like he snored. <laughs> so did my mother. Just for the record, she was a girl though. You know. And um, I wanted to make sure I could hear him breathe. And so obviously during that time, because this is my first time doing all this, 
And I was like, oh my gosh, I've never experienced this. But okay, he did this for me. I could do it for him. And um, I did that and sat next to my father when he had his first chemo. He only had one treatment. My dad got sick the next day. Um, and I was there, and I, my dad literally, I, he said that he looked at me because I'm so embarrassed, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I was like, if you did this for me, why wouldn't I do this for you? You cleaned me up and everything else. When at, God, 50, you could have been doing other things in life. And so I would do anything for you, and, and, and I love you. And um, then he died May 17th at 9.02 in the morning, Phoenix time. Well, the, the love you have for your dad is clear in, the, uh, in this discussion and in every page in this book, and it's really a beautiful book. Thank you. And, I'm uh, a stalker kid in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, once again, to those listening, the name of the book, Joe Black, More Than a Dodger, published by Chicago Review Press, truly more than a Dodger, and uh, written by Martha Joe Black. Thank you so much, Martha Joe. Yeah, thank you. Uh,